Good morning and welcome to Monday Mornings. With Maddie and Morgan. I'm Maddie. And I'm Morgan. Hello, happy late Thanksgiving. Happy late Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Oh, I was going to ask you that. Oh. oh, I'm a stuffing girl. Mm, see, I'm the worst and I hate stuffing. No. Yeah. Being I've... said, we do a pork stuffing and a bread stuffing. Oh. I we do that. a stuffing and then a gluten-free stuffing. <laughs> but I don't eat there. Eat either. I also like turkey and vegetables. I really like it all. Mashed potatoes, of course. I just like potatoes and pie. What kind of pie? Ooh, so that's a hard one. I really like pumpkin. We only had a little bit of apple this year, but this year, because uh, one set of my grandparents didn't come this year because they said, we're not going to do Thanksgiving. And I said, I get you. I feel that. <laughs> Whatever. It's a lot of effort. So they said, you can come visit us Friday. And we did. And it was lovely. <laughs> um, but they sent us this, like, really good cheesecake that had, like, the chocolate cake part. And then it had, like, caramel and nuts on top. It's so very good. I'm not a huge cheesecake girl, but I think I would like that. I love cheesecake. But... <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, I forgot you all were here. <laughs> Bear with me. I just, I was away from Wednesday to Sunday. It's 7 p.m. on Sunday night, and I just walked in my door. So we're in for a roller coaster today. Yeah, so if... Uh... If the editing on this episode is not great, it's because... Or non-existent. That. It's because of that. <laughs> it's because of that, so... <laughs> Get ready. It'll be fun. Yes. So, you ready for part two of Whitey Bulger? I'm so ready. Okay. Thank God. I have to pull up my uh, key players document. Oh, Yes. So, hello, everybody. Welcome back to our Whitey Boulder series. <laughs> As we mentioned last week, this is going to be a multi-parter, and it's definitely going to be a three-part episode. But don't worry. You don't have to wait a whole week for part three. We're going to try to have it ready for you for a Friday episode. Heck yeah. Yeah. So... Before we jump back into this, I'll give you a brief overview of what we talked about last week. Okay. Whitey Bulger was a troubled kid who started his life in organized crime pretty young. He briefly served in the military, but did spend some time in military prison before he was honorably discharged. <laughs> After that, he ended up falling back into a life of crime and was sent to prison for armed bank robbery. In prison, he was subject to MK Ultra mind control testing and LSD injections by the CIA under the guise of schizophrenia research. He ended up spending a bit of time at Alcatraz and ended up getting an early release with the help of his brother, Billy. After his release, yet again, he fell into the life of Boston's organized crime and eventually gained control over all of Southie and occasionally Somerville. Whitey and Flemmy both became FBI informants, using law enforcement to take out their competition and evade any punishment for their actions, which include murder, amongst other crimes. 
Yes. So now that we're all basically kind of caught up. (laughs) I feel caught up. (laughs) Let's jump back into it. So the peak of Whitey's reign over Boston's underground was in the 1980s when him, Kevin Weeks, and Stevie (laughs) Flemmy, who I know you hate his name. (laughs) Oh, you know what he makes me think of? Is that Mucinex monster guy? <laughs> yup. Flemmy. That's like actually what I picture is like that, but like in person form. Yep. Gross. Yeah. So they operated loan sharking, bookmaking, truck hijacking, arms trafficking, and extortion throughout eastern Massachusetts. Classic. Yeah, super fun. Super fun. Authorities tried but failed to build a case against or get any charges to stick to the trio. This was majorly, majorly, there we go, because of the code of silence throughout Southie. They had an intense fear of wiretapping, which meant no business over the phone or in vehicles. And wiretapping back then of phones, which is basically just like when they listen into you, which now they just do all the time, but... (laughs) (laughs) It was extremely common back then, and many friends or relatives of anyone involved in the Winter Hill Gang or other organized crime groups, their phones were basically tapped at that point. Most of the time, conversations on the phone were kept very short and vague. The South Boston Code of Silence deterred most from talking, and the corruption in the FBI, Boston police, and the state troopers sealed the deal. I remember reading about that before. Yeah. But everybody was terrified, so I kind of get it. Like, if you live in that neighborhood, you're just going to shut your mouth. Like, Oh, yeah, because it's not, nothing good comes to a rat in these situations. Like, you can't. You get stitches. Exactly. Ooh. Whitey himself was a, apparently a sober man. That's surprising to me. Yeah, I think it had to do with uh, MKUltra. Oh. Yeah. Um, But his soberness did not stop him from extorting and controlling the local drug dealers. This man really can't keep his hands out of anything. Oh my god, just wait for it. Like, (laughs) what, sir? I can't. (laughs) So, (laughs) we briefly talked about this last week, I think. But essentially, Whitey would trick these drug dealers into giving him a cut. He would do this by calling them into his headquarters and telling them that he had been offered money to kill them. And then he would demand money in exchange for not killing them. To recap, they were never in danger. (laughs) (laughs) He just made shit up to get money, of course. (laughs) Shocker. So one of these dealers was a man named John Red Shea. So Red controlled most of the cocaine and weed trafficking in Southie. Whitey had originally thought about killing Red, but decided he would let him live and extorted a weekly cut of his profits. So generous. We let him live. Generous. (laughs) You get to survive. Uh, So also, if you remember from last week, uh, Kevin Weeks 
is one of the top guys in Whitey's little clique. And he also wrote a few memoirs and took a plea bargain at the end of everything. So there's a lot of quotes from him and references from him because that's where most of these things are known from. So according to Weeks, Whitey had very strict rules or standards for the dealers working in his territories. They were not allowed to sell PCP and they were not allowed to deal to kids. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. I read somewhere that they also weren't allowed to sell heroin, but I'm not positive about that one. Well, I'm glad we have boundaries. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) And any dealers that broke these rules were driven out of his territory in a very violent manner. Shocker. Shocker. In 1990, Red and some associates were arrested after an investigation by the DEA, Boston Police, and the state troopers. They ended up serving a pretty long sentence after refusing to admit to paying protection money to Whitey. This protection money was a cut that Whitey would take from the dealers working in his territory. Red and his people served their sentence quietly, but did fight any inmates that called Whitey a rat. This ended up giving Red a legendary status in Southie. And since his 12-year sentence in prison has ended, (laughs) Red has written books and comments on both local and national news channels about Whitey and organized crime. Another fun fact about Red is that Alec Baldwin actually fractured Red's thumb while playing football with him and Mark Wahlberg on the set of The Departed. What the hell? (laughs) Yeah, I guess they, like, had him on helping verify things and all that for The Departed, which, I mean, is based loosely on Whitey and his crimes and stuff. It's not meant to be based on him, but... That's very funny. That's, like, a good trivia fact. I was, like, clicked on the guy's name, and there's literally two paragraphs, and one line in the paragraph is how he fractured his thumb playing football with Alec Baldwin and Mark Wahlberg. I was like, okay. Okay. That's new. (laughs) So, in 1999, when Weeks started to cooperate, in an interview with the Boston Globe, he linked Whitey to Boston's drug trafficking because I guess he hadn't been formally linked before. He estimated that Whitey had made about $30 million, most of which came from shaking down dealers for letting them do business on his turf. Holy crap. Yeah. He's a lot. As I mentioned earlier, Whitey was involved in arms trafficking. Which, when you think of criminals or gangs doing this, I usually assume it's, like, lower-level shit, like selling illegal guns to other criminals and whatnot. But this was so much more. So, Morgan, how much do you know about Ireland? <laughs> um, not that much. <laughs> they have shit, a lot of Cool, because neither do I, so... And there's some conflict, usually... Yeah, so I don't know much about Ireland, but there was some conflict. And in the 80s, tensions were very high in Ireland because of the Northern Ireland conflict. 
and sympathy for Irish nationalism and the IRA, which is the provisional Irish Republican Army, was very high in South Boston because of its huge Irish population. This sympathy would extend into fundraising and even weapon smuggling, which is where Whitey comes in. I forgot about this. I knew that fact. I completely forgot this was even part of the story. <laughs> it just, it's so wild to me. Like, you're just like a crime boss in Boston, just like doing your thing, like ripping off money from drug dealers and like little guys in their corner stores, making them pay you for quote protection. But now you're sending weapons over to Ireland and like... That's just, like, not just breaking state-level laws and, like, federal-level law. Like, you're going absolutely above and beyond just for for mm-hmm. the bit at this point. I feel like that's a, a high-risk... I mean, it's all high-risk activity, but if you're already at risk for being caught in other things, that's, like, so far out of what you would be expected to do. I don't even know what to say. Yeah, it's... It's absurd. So when Whitey agreed to become an informant for the FBI, one of his contingencies was that he would never give up the IRA. Or, like, talk about it. And so when they originally signed with, like, signed him up to be an informant, they didn't really understand what the fuck that meant. They were like, okay, like... They just probably assumed that, like, he knew things going on over there. And they were like, all right, whatever. Like, we're not going to get involved with that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but Whitey was very involved in both donating money and sending them weapons. In the early 80s, Whitey shipped a van with guns and a block of C4 over to Ireland to help out. He did get a little bit pissy, though, because the recipients of this ended up burning the van to cover up any evidence. But she was kind of like, what the fuck? Perfectly good van. I I do have to say, throughout everything we've learned so far, he sounds like a huge fucking drama queen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Spaz. Um, So... Some point after this happened, Whitey and Patney met with the IRA chief of staff, Joe Cahill. Whitey and Nee then went to Southie and Charleston to shake d- Charlestown, not Charleston, to shake down dealers for quote donations, making a million dollars. Yeah, the that's donations for sure. Yeah, then a million dollars in the eighties. Like that's so much more money now. I know. Like, okay, so they shook down a million dollars that they used to buy and send weapons over to the NRA. To not the NRA, the IRA. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. Whoops. Same thing, not really. Um, Okay. (laughs) To do this, they used a commercial fishing boat called the Valhalla. This is a quote from Wikipedia. (laughs) On September 13th, 1984, Bulger, Weeks, and Nee supervised the loading of Valhalla. The final cache included 91 rifles, 8 submachine guns, 13 shotguns, 51 hand grenades, 11 bulletproof vests, 
70,000 rounds of ammunition, ammunition, plus an array of hand grenades and rocket heads, end quote. Yikes. Actually, that was an end quote. There's more. End of sentence. (laughs) End of sentence, end quote. (laughs) Oh. Valhalla rendezvous. Uh, 120 miles off the west coast of Ireland with uh, Marita Ann, a IRA ship that had sailed from Tralee. During the return voyage, the Irish Navy stopped the Marita Ann and seized the hidden arsenal, arresting IRA members Martin Ferris, Mike Brown, and John Crawley. The operation had been compromised by IRA member Sean O'Callaghan, who was an informant for the Irish National Police. End quote. So, yeah, they sent all that shit, and then it immediately got seized. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Ooh. So, back in Boston, a man named John McIntyre is arrested by Boston police, quote, for trying to visit his estranged wife, end quote. Yeah, there has to be more to the story, but I'm not sure what. They, like, I was reading it online, and it was just, like, arrested for trying to visit his estranged wife. <laughs> so I'm guessing she had a restraining order on him. Yeah, sounds like more likely they were just probably not trying to make him look too bad, but... He's a criminal. Yeah. Ooh. So, John ended up... Sorry. John happened to be a crew member on the Valhalla... And ended up confessing to his part in the weapon smuggling. I don't know what they said to him in this arrest, but <laughs> in his confession, he implicates Whitey. This confession is also given to FBI agent Roderick Kennedy, where Agent Conley overhears that someone from Valhalla was cooperating. Connolly shares this with Whitey, confirming his suspicions of McIntyre. Whitey and Flummy debate if they should kill him or not for his betrayal. They decide that they want to avoid killing him and offer to send him to South America with a bunch of money instead. I'd take that deal. (laughs) The only catch is that he couldn't see or contact anyone ever again. Oh, A real exile. Yeah. So after hours and hours of interrogation, Whitey determined that McIntyre would not be able to cut all ties with everyone. Whitey then killed him and went upstairs to take a nap. Yeah. Uh, uh, Home, like, bad dude. Just, like... While he napped, Weeks and Flemmy removed McIntyre's teeth and buried him in the basement. Big yikes. Yeah. No thank you. It's also like, I'm pretty sure they were currently in somebody's house. So yeah, you took out these teeth so they might not be able to ID who it was, but you're still going to get in trouble for a murder. Right. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, this is really fun. In 1991, it is suspected that Whitey illegitimately won the Massachusetts State Lottery. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, like, never... Talk about been... not flying under the radar. But also, yeah. like, they give him the money. Like, it's not... They don't, like, say it's actually illegitimate. They're just like, oh, that wasn't great how you did that. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, according to the stories I've read, a man named Michael Linsky won the Mass Millions after purchasing a lottery ticket from the South Boston Liquor Mart. Michael happened to be the brother of Patrick Linsky, who worked under Whitey. Once Whitey heard about this winning, this winning ticket, he forced the winner to sign it over to himself in weeks. I think he, like, paid him... Some chunk of money or something. It was like everything sounded different, but like in the end, it ended up that they were supposed to be splitting it four ways between the two Linsky brothers, Whitey and Weeks. And everything was like, oh, Michael got like a lot of money. He didn't get as much money as he was supposed to get, but at least he didn't die. Oh my God. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, this was seen as a great legitimate insource, source of income for Whitey. He was like, oh, great. This will keep, like, tax people off my back because it makes sense. Like, I don't need to have, like, a whatever idiot things. Um, and this was supposed to be coming in yearly payments through 2010. So now we are moving on to the beginning of the end for Whitey. Thank goodness. So in April of 1994, a joint task force between the DEA, Boston Police, and Massachusetts State Troopers launched a probe into Bulger's illegal gambling operations. The FBI was not initially informed or involved in this because at this point everyone knew there was something going on with Whitey and the FBI. They knew they were in cahoots. Cahoots. (laughs) Bookmakers under Whitey agreed to testify to paying protection money to him. This helps build the federal federal RICO case against him. We'll talk more about RICO and charges and all that stuff in the next episode, but here's a general overview from nolo.com's legal encyclopedia (laughs) quote passed in 1970 the racketeer influenced and corrupt organization act is a federal law designed to combat organized organized crime in the united states it allows prosecution of civil penalties for racketeering activities performed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise Such activity may include illegal gambling, bribery, kidnapping, murder, money laundering, counterfeiting, embezzlement, drug trafficking, slavery, and a host of other unsavory business practices. To convict a defendant under RICO, the government must prove that the defendant engaged in two or more instances of racketeering activity and that the defendant directly invested in, maintained an interest, interest in, or participated in a criminal enterprise affecting interstate or foreign commerce. The law has been used to prosecute members of the Mafia, the Hells Angels Motorcycle Gang, and Operation Rescue, an anti-abortion group, among many others, end quote. 
Interesting. I had no idea. Yeah, it basically is passed so that, uh, like, crime bosses could fall for crimes that they, like, didn't actually commit, like... Right, that makes sense. At this point in the early 90s, the pressure had been building for Whitey, so he started to look at his options. According to Weeks, quote... In 1993 and 1994, before the pinches came down, Jimmy and Stevie were traveling on the French and Italian Riviera. The two of them traveled all over Europe, sometimes separating for a while. Sometimes they took girls. Sometimes just the two of them went. They would rent cars and travel all through Europe. It was more preparation than anything, getting ready for another life. They didn't ask me to go. Not that I would have wanted to. Jimmy had prepared for the run for years. He'd established a whole other person, Thomas Baxter, with a complete ID and credit cards in that name. He'd even joined associations in Baxter's name, building an entire portfolio for the guy. He had always said you had to be ready to take off on a short's notice, and he was, end quote. Oh, my God. Yeah, so the thing about Whitey Bulger is he was, like, a smart criminal. Like, he knew what he was doing and he wasn't just some big dumbling like guy trying to get money off of people like he sucked a lot but like he's an interesting criminal to read about because he was actually like really smart i didn't know that part yeah whitey had also set up safe deposit boxes across north america and europe he had stocked these locations with cash, jewelry, and passports. These were located in Florida, Oklahoma, Montreal, Dublin, London, Birmingham, and Venice. In December of 1994, the FBI was finally clued in on the RICO case. Conley tells Whitey about sealed indictments that came down from the DOJ, adding that the FBI would be making some arrests during Christmas time. On December 23rd, 1994, Wadey Bulger and his common wife, common law wife, Teresa Stanley, fled Boston. Which is very interesting because he has a common law wife. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot of weird shit that goes down in the next little bit. So They first went to Selden, New York, where they spent about four days over the holidays. Then they went to a hotel in New Orleans' French Quarter. On July 5th, 1995, Whitey was getting ready to head back to Boston when he got a call from Weeks. He had been planning on going back to Boston since he thought that it had all been a false alarm. That night, when Weeks called him, he told him that Stephen Flummy had been arrested by the DEA. Weeks had actually been told about this arrest by Flemmy's brother, Michael Flemmy, who was a detective with the Boston Police Department. Classic. Yeah. (laughs) So, after that, instead of returning to Boston, Whitey and Teresa traveled for a few more weeks to New York City, L.A., and San Francisco. Eventually, (laughs) Teresa decided that she wanted to go home back to Massachusetts to be with her kids. I don't know how old her kids were or why she felt that she wanted to run with him in the first place if she was leaving children. I was about to ask, like, uh, so why'd she leave in the first place? 
And I was like, did you just get caught up in it? And, like, you were already in the car and he decided to keep driving? (laughs) Like, what happened there, girlfriend? So, (laughs) first, they go to Clearwater, Florida to pick up one of Whitey's stashes, which include a new identity under the name Tom Baxter that Weeks had just told us about. From Florida, they drove back to Boston and Whitey dropped Teresa off in a parking lot. Oh. <laughs> I'm assuming that somebody was meeting her there to, like, pick her up. But when I think about it, I just picture him, like, rolling up and then pushing her out the passenger side door and, like, her rolling out and then I'm, like, zooming off. <laughs> That's what I'm picturing, too. And I'm picturing it, like, under an overpass or something. Yeah, it's, like, under one of the bridges in Boston and it's, like, damp. <laughs> Poor Teresa. <laughs> like outside Centarpios and Eastie. <laughs> <laughs> so after, after dropping Teresa off, Whitey meets up with Weeks at Malibu Beach in Dorchester. Because yes, in Dorchester, there is a Malibu Beach. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> Weeks brought with him Whitey's girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. What? Yeah. So <laughs> he had a common law wife and a girlfriend. And then that is when the duo leaves Boston for the last time. After they leave Weeks, it was essentially oh wait, sorry. After they left, Weeks was essentially in charge of the Winter Hill gang. Because, yes, it was still business as usual for them. They were still, like, fully operating. Like, I don't know. Apparently, there weren't charges brought down at all. That's insanity. (laughs) Yeah. During this period of time uh, in Whitey's life, we don't really know much. We only know, like, little bits and pieces that are reported by Weeks in his memoirs and, like, a few things that Whitey talks about in, like, police interviews later. At one point, Weeks meets up with um, Catherine and Whitey in Chicago, and Whitey talks fondly about hiding out with family, but as the night goes on, he ends up sharing about how exhausting it is to be on the run. Adding, quote, every day out there is another day I beat them. Every good meal is a meal they can't take away from me, end quote. Like, okay, you're a free man for another day. It's good for you. Yeah, congrats. (laughs) At this meeting, he also told Weeks to put anything that comes down on him in reference to charges against the Winter Hill game. So, like, if anything, like, the cops would be like, oh, they're just like, oh, that was Whitey. Oh, that was Whitey. Like, he basically was just like, just throw everything at me. Like, I'm on the run anyways, so. Interesting. Which either is very cocky of him thinking that he'll never get caught. Or he's just like, fuck it. Like, I'm on the run. I'll go down with my ship. Which I don't think he was. In November 1995, almost a whole year after being on the run, Whitey and Weeks meet in public for the last time. They met at the lion statues outside of the New York Public Library and ate dinner at a restaurant nearby. I have another quote from Weeks about this meeting. 
Quote, at the end of our dinner, he seemed more aware of everything around him. His tone was a little more serious, and there wasn't as much joking as usual. He repeated the phrase he had used before, that a rolling stone gathers no moss, which told me that he knew he was going to be on the move again. I got the feeling that he was resigning himself to the fact that he wasn't coming back. Up until then, I always believed he thought there was a chance that he had beat the case. However, at that point, there was something different going on with him. I didn't fully understand all the aspects of his case. It would be another six months before it became clear. Yet at that moment in that restaurant in New York, I sensed that he had moved to a new place in his mind. It was over. He'd never return to South Boston. End quote. Interesting. Yeah. It's like weird that he can, I don't know, tell. Yeah. So four years later, on November 17th, 1999, Kevin Weeks was arrested by the DEA and Mass State Police. This was also when he was first made aware of Whitey's FBI informant status. Which is so sad because it's like, oh, they were so, like, Weeks was, like, so tight and, like, so there for him and, like, did so much shit for him. And then you find out that, like, oh, Whitey and Flemmy were both, like, fucking rats. Yeah. Ugh. So, while in federal prison in Rhode Island, Weeks was approached by a member of the Patriarca family who said, quote, Are you going to take it up the ass for these guys? Remember, you can't rat on a rat. Those guys have been giving up everyone for 30 years. End quote. Eventually, Weeks decides to cut a deal with the feds and tells them where every body, so like every corpse, had been buried in the locations of all stashed money. Oh my god. Yeah. He really spilled every single bean. Oh yeah. He was like, alright, shorter sentence, like, all that stuff, we're gonna go for it. Damn. I'm pretty sure that he took this plea deal because he knew Whitey would have done the same thing. In 2006, Weeks said, quote, I had known all along, however, that it would not be easy for anyone to capture Jimmy. If he saw them coming, he would take them with him. He wouldn't hesitate. Even before he went on the run, he would always say, let's all go to hell together. And he meant it. I also knew that Jimmy wouldn't go to trial. He would rather plead out a life sentence than put his family through the embarrassment of a trial. If he had a gun on him, he would go out in a blaze of glory rather than spend the rest of his life in jail. But I don't think they'll ever catch him. End quote. Interesting. Yeah. To wrap things up, I'm going to talk a little bit about the manhunt incitings of Whitey up until his capture. And then in the third and final part, we will talk about the actual capture and trial, as well as the outcomes of his associates and the death of Whitey Bulger. So, the first confirmed sighting of Whitey was in 2002 in London. And there have been a ton of other unconfirmed sightings around the world. FBI agents were sent to Yaraguay for a while to follow a possible lead. Agents had been sent to the 60th anniversary of the Battle of Normandy Normandy, because apparently Whitey was a huge fan of military history. <laughs> like, did they think that he was actually going to be there, or were they just like, this event's happening? Hey, boss, can I uh, yeah. head out to 
Normandy. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Uh, and 2007, there was a video of a couple in Sicily that had thought to have been Whitey and Grieg. I also can't pronounce her last name. It's G-R-E-I-G. Grieg sounds right. Grieg? Greg? <laughs> Doesn't really matter. <laughs> True. But it ended up actually being a couple of tourists from Germany. At some point in 2010, the FBI changed their focus to Victoria, British Columbia. If you remember from the last episode, I mentioned that Whitey was an avid reader and spent a lot of his time in prison reading. Because the FBI knew about his love of books, they visited the area bookstores, handing out wanted posters and asking any workers for any and all information. Um, I don't think he was there at all, but... It was just a cat rubbing her face on the microphone, so that's what that sound was, if you heard it. (laughs) I didn't, but maybe it came through. Who knows? Um, (laughs) The FBI also assumes that to keep from being found, that Whitey uh, was probably spending all of his time at his, like, home base and not, like, going out much. But Mm -hmm. when he was captured, Whitey actually said that he traveled pretty frequently. (laughs) Casual. Yeah, he was like, oh, just gotta keep moving. Like, sir. Many reports started to come in of sightings of Whitey in Southern California. He had been spotted on the Santa Monica Pier, as well as at a San Diego screening of The Departed. That is fucking hilarious. Oh my god. And that's a confirmed sighting. That is so funny. Oh, yeah, this confirmed sighting resulted in a, like, search of Southern California that lasted weeks. That is bold. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, it's just an old, at that point, it's just an old dude rolling up to a movie theater. Right. (laughs) So, on June 22nd, 2011, after 16 years on the run and 12 years on the FBI top 10 most wanted list, James Whitey Bulger was arrested outside of his home in Santa Monica, California, at the age of 81. I didn't realize he was so old when he was found. Oh, yeah. That dude is old. Well, now he's dead. Yeah. That was a brutal death, but we'll talk about that next week. (laughs) (laughs) That's for next week. Stay tuned. Or for Friday. Wowie. That man sucks. Yeah. <laughs> after every, every, after every part, we're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It just also, also like, sucks. so much of it's just so absurd. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I can't believe that departed screening thing. <laughs> it's just like so ballsy at that point you're like just kind of like somebody dared you to do that they're like i dare you to go see this movie you went to a movie about you (laughs) literally while you're while you're trying not to be caught hope y'all enjoyed part two stay tuned for part three and as always stay tuned next monday and every monday for new episodes You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you're currently listening. 
We're on Instagram at Monday Mornings Pod and on Twitter at Monday Mornings P. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to have covered in a future episode, you can DM us on any of those social medias. But you can also email us at mondaymorningspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. And you know what to do. Start your Monday mornings the right way with Maddie and Morgan.